0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. How soon do you want your online shopping delivered? Two days? The next day? An hour? How about before you've even ordered it? Amazon has transformed shipping and big retailers are following suit. Behind the scenes, that's radically transformed how stuff gets around the world. And the biggest traditional toy maker in China isn't homegrown. It's Lego. We pay a visit to a bustling flagship store in Shanghai to ask why the Danish bricks are so much more popular than other toys. But first. America's democratic primary debates kicked off last month.
2: Join
3: the Paris Climate Accord. What the President of the United States should do is not deny the reality of climate change. We've
0: got 10 more candidates tomorrow night.
1: Tonight, the second round begins, and the stage will again be crowded. 20 out of 25 candidates will participate over two nights. And of the four frontrunners, Elizabeth Warren will take on Bernie Sanders tonight. Tomorrow, it'll be a rematch for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But each evening, there will also be eight other candidates fighting to stand out. The slate of 25 hopefuls could fill two football teams. It could be the primary cast for a Broadway musical. In the 20th century, such a crowded field would have been unusual. But in America, at least, it's not anymore. And though it does give voters plenty to choose from, it doesn't necessarily make it easy for the most qualified candidates to stand out.
2: Well, it's not normal to have 25 or 27 candidates running for their party's nomination for president. Elliot
1: Morris is one of our data
2: journalists. The previous record was set in 2016 during Donald Trump's contest to be the Republican nominee when 16 people ran. And before that, the record was in 2008. There were 12 people. But going back to the 50s and the 70s, there were just 5 or 10 nominees even at the most crowded cycles.
1: So what changed?
2: In the 70s and 80s, after losing a series of presidential elections rather drastically, the Democrats sort of spearheaded the democratization process and decided to have a lighter hand in the process, and Republicans followed suit.
1: So what is the process today of of becoming a presidential contender?
2: Well, the parties let anyone who wants to run for president to do so, but to win over enough voters, you have to appear in nationally televised debates, make a name for yourself, And to appear in those debates, the Democratic National Committee, the oversight body for the party, has decided you must meet certain thresholds in polling and donor contributions. So you have to meet 1% in an array of public polls and have 65,000 people donate to your campaign. These contribution limits and polling thresholds are set before... We even know who's going to run for president. So the fact that there are 25 candidates running 20 on the debate stage might mean that those thresholds are set too low. And
1: so what's the effect of that? What happens when you permit that many people to get up on the debate stage?
2: When you allow so many candidates to compete for the nomination, you reward candidacies of two types. First, those who can appeal to a large number of people on social media and shore up their status and online donations. And also those who can take extreme positions and sort of crowd out the field with just 2 or 3% in the polls. All of this just makes it harder for qualified candidates to stand out.
1: And so what effect has that dynamic had on the, the Democratic race so far?
2: Well, this year it has had a very observable effect in the fact that Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, a very red state, thus making him sort of qualified to win over Trump voters that the Democrats need to do to win the election, was left off of the stage in the first debate in June. This was because he didn't meet the right polling and donor thresholds. He just didn't have enough support from the public. Maybe he wasn't spending enough money on social media to win enough donor contributions. In his place was Marianne Williamson, a self-help author and sort of spiritual guru, whose assertion that there's, quote, no higher art than living a beautiful life may not quite be the Democrats' winning message in 2020, but nevertheless, she spoke to millions of voters on behalf of the Democrats.
1: So presumably party bosses recognize that this is a problem, it's a growing problem.
2: They do see the drawbacks of having 25 people run for president. However, the tools that they need to fix this broken system are largely regarded as undemocratic to the people. Over the past 30 years, the parties have sort of let go of the ways that they can override the voters' will and democratize the process. It would be pretty hard to go back on those promises.
1: And and this is not at all a common problem. This is all but unique to the American system, right?
2: Yes. This struggle over control for the nominating process is uniquely American. Every other democratized country around the world does not nominate their presidential candidates this way. Most of them allow some combination of legislators, party members, or interest groups to select their leaders, and this is the case in Britain as well as France, Canada, Australia, Mexico. A lack of oversight in the American system has opened it up to being hijacked by outsider extremists, and nowhere else in the world has the party let go of the reins of their nominating system in this way.
1: It sounds like there are good arguments against the system as it currently stands. Are there any good arguments for it? Why do the people who like the way things are like the way things are?
2: Well, a lot of them argue that it opens the door for some incredible nominee, some dark horse. They also argue that it solves the problem of having so many people run for president already because it winnows them down over time. Uh, We will see next month before the September debates, the Democratic National Committee, the sort of boss of the party, will winnow the field further to probably 10 or 15. But this still incentivizes bad decision-making among the American people and among the party process in that, you know, for example, Eric Swalwell, who's a congressman from California, recently dropped out after the first debate. And he said he did so not because he lost the ideas battle in the primary. In fact, he ran on a pretty popular issue among Democrats, more gun control. But because he did not make enough money to continue his campaign to fund the sort of infrastructure investments that the politicians need to visit states all around the country to whip up caucus goers and to win primaries. Instead, he was spending money meeting donor thresholds.
1: Meeting the thresholds that would have got him on the debate stage that would then, you know, keep him in in the contest.
2: Uh, right. And losing Eric Swalwell might not be a horrible loss for the Democrats, but a system that rewards exciting, attention-grabby candidates has this time resulted in the loss of maybe the Democrats' best chances to beat Donald Trump.
1: So how can the system be changed? How should the system be changed, to your mind?
2: Well, people who want the primary system reformed today argue that giving the power back to the party bosses, letting them decide the candidate at the convention rather than letting the voters decide nine, ten months before, might do a better job at producing qualified candidates. And the idea surrounding this is that the party elites, elected members of Congress, might have a better judgment of who's qualified to run in the general election and, at least in this case, beat Donald Trump.
1: Right. But how do you actually put that into practice?
2: People who support reforming the party nominating system think that the party should claw back its power from the voters. Elaine Kmark is one of such supporters of reform. She's a scholar at the Brookings Institution, an American think tank. And she puts forward three ideas that are widely accepted in the political science community that could be used to reinstate such power. The first is increasing the role that superdelegates play in the primary. These are those delegates that have whatever say they want over selecting whichever candidate they want or the party could select a slate of, say, 2015 candidates before the primary gets underway in what we might refer to as an endorsement primary before the actual primary. And then another solution is to take the British parliamentary model and have the legislators in the national legislature nominate the candidates that they want to see fight out for the party's platform.
1: It seems clear that for this presidential cycle anyway, the system as it is, is going to stay. As regards tonight's debates, what will you be looking out for as we try to get down from a large number to a smaller number?
2: Tonight's debate will feature the first appearance of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the same national stage. They did not share the same stage in June's debate. They'll have the chance to fight out the party position on left-leaning issues like Medicaid for all. The other eight candidates might have the chance to grab the centrist issues by the horns, which the primary has sort of ignored so far. There's an understanding that the Democrats might be moving too far left to win a general election when that otherwise might not be the case. And election watchers are always paying attention to the times when they stake out more moderate and appealing positions on these issues.
1: Elliot, thanks for your time.
2: Happy to be here.
4: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter.
3: Visit Bancofamerica.com/slash banking
4: for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024.
1: Shopping is getting quicker, much quicker. With a few clicks, the item you've ordered will arrive on your doorstep within hours. But those goods that come so speedily have often been assembled in multiple countries— then transported across oceans, where they'll be delivered to your home by lorry, car, bike, even by drone. These are supply chains. And the shift to instant shopping means they're undergoing their greatest transformation in three decades. It's one company that's been the catalyst.
3: Amazon has transformed the way that all of business operates. Vijay Vaisiswaran is our U.S. business editor. Not only consumer-facing businesses like retail, as you'd expect where they compete for the custom of ordinary people. But even business to business enterprises that don't deal with consumers are now having to increase the metabolism of their business. Companies are expecting products that used to arrive in two weeks or a month to arrive by overnight shipping, for example, even within the industrial space. And so it's leading to a radical rejigging of supply chains to become shorter, smarter, and faster to respond to the new economy.
1: The last revolution in supply chains involved another retail colossus. In 1962,
3: after becoming Ben Franklin's largest franchisee, Sam opened his first large discount store under the Walmart name in Rogers, Arkansas. It was less than one-fifth the size of...
1: Walmart was started by Sam Walton in Arkansas in 1962. It remains the world's largest company by revenue.
3: Undeterred, Sam continued to pursue his vision. And two years later, in 1964, he opened his second Walmart in Harrison, Arkansas. I went to the Walmart Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas, because I wanted to get a sense of the history of the place. The company that's now become the world's biggest once started off extremely small and extremely frugal. The entrance to the museum is actually a functioning five-and-dime convenience store straight out of the 1960s. And Sam Walton's office is still there.
4: Uh, actually, on the credenza behind his desk is a trucker's cap. And uh, it's something that Sam was always seen sporting.
3: And, he and I got a to... earful from the director, Alan Draenow, who runs the museum, about how exactly the company's transformation from one little storefront to the world's the biggest cap. habit.
4: Okay, not a regular baseball cap. It was a trucker's cap because Sam had a passion for our truckers and for our transportation division. Why? No, because he knew that they were key to our success. And so the trucker's cap represented his passion for transportation.
3: Retail before Walmart was slow, lumbering, inefficient. The company revolutionized supply chains by stripping out those sorts of inefficiencies along the way, and in effect, asking the world's biggest brands like the Procter & Gamble and Unilevers to outsource their supply chain to Walmart to its much more efficient and rapid and speedy for the time supply chains. It continues to try to stay ahead of the game. Over a decade ago, it became the first big retailer to embrace the internet
4: site to store means that you go online and you could order something from walmart.com and it would ship to your local store the fact is that we were using our distribution channels we're using our supply chain to move product to the stores from our distribution centers and not having to use an outside system such as you know an outside carrier that would cost a lot of money And uh, And the customer would pick up right at the
1: the store. The customer would pick it up
4: right at the store. The
1: customers were loving it. So how is Walmart reacting to the new challenge posed by Amazon?
3: So the arms race between Amazon and Walmart is heating up. A few months ago, Amazon announced that it was going to transform its two-day free shipping promise for its many Prime members into one-day shipping. And invested nearly a billion dollars to upgrade its infrastructure to that end. Walmart fired back, offering free shipping on hundreds of thousands of products and next day delivery as well. But the arms race doesn't stop there. Already, Amazon executives are planning on moving towards 30-minute delivery, and they hold the patent on something that sounds too good to be true, but predictive shopping. Amazon holds the patent on delivering your products even before you order them.
1: I mean, this is madness. Doesn't some of this come down to how fast the stuff can be brought from where it's made? I don't really see how you can continue to promise things so much faster and faster and in negative times without taking into account where this
3: stuff has to come from. The key to these faster delivery times is really positioning stocks much closer to the consumer, first of all, and secondly, understanding consumer behavior. And that's where companies like Amazon and in China, Alibaba, have the lead because they have not only massive treasure troves of data on our behavior, shopping and other forms of uh, intent. But they're able to harvest it through machine learning, data analytics, and be able to position stocks much closer to where there's likely to be demand. That's the secret sauce.
1: But still, it has to come from somewhere, sometimes halfway around the world. Does does long-distance shipping not figure into this?
3: Uh, You're absolutely right that you can't deliver... Uh, in a day or half a day if your item has to be shipped from China before it can get to the customer. So this is why many companies are now shortening their supply chains. Uh, They're positioning stocks much closer. They're moving suppliers and their ecosystem of factories from places like China, where they used to be, to, for example, Eastern Europe to serve Europe or to Mexico to serve the U.S. Uh, And you're seeing a shortening of supply chains, but shorter doesn't mean simpler. You're actually seeing much more technology be that artificial intelligence or new forms of analytics that are being embedded. So they're actually becoming smarter and faster as well. Supply chains are undergoing a real revolution.
1: And with that revolution, will there be any real competition beyond Amazon, Walmart, Alibaba? Is, is it really just the super fast incumbents that are in the race now?
3: I don't think so. It's undeniable that companies, particularly Amazon, uh, have leapfrogged ahead. But what they've really done, though, is forced the rest of multinational world, corporate America and Europe and corporate China to raise their game. And this is what we're seeing, that the the companies that are unable to adapt, the ones that are wedded to their old legacy assets or old ways of thinking will fall behind as you suggest. And indeed they may not survive, but there are other companies where the boards and senior management are putting high level thought into turning supply chains from being a source of merely efficiency into being a source of competitive advantage. And I think those are the companies that will win in the new global race. BJ, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure.
1: China is set to become the world's largest toy and game market in three years, beating out America for the top slot. And one company has been building up a base there, brick by brick.
0: Lego has been on a real tear in China.
1: Stephanie Studer is The Economist's China business correspondent and is based in Shanghai. In
0: 2017, Lego became China's leading traditional toy company. It only opened its first store there a couple of years ago. And Now it's already at close to 90 and it wants to open lots more before the end of the year. It's going to be in 30 cities by the end of 2019.
1: And you've been to one of these stores?
0: I have. I went to one of its flagship stores in Shanghai It's over a couple of floors, and uh, it was noisy. There was loud music playing, you know, children running about and shouting, parents patiently watching on the side, and all these giant Lego models towering above us. It was more like an amusement park, actually. There's lots to do there. Like what? Well, building, for a start. Clearly. It's stock in trade. I spoke to one mother, Li Yang, who had two children at the store. Her daughter downstairs, her son, she hadn't seen for a couple of hours. He was upstairs on another play table. And when I asked her what she liked about Lego, she said that it encouraged creativity, it helps with spatial awareness because they're building 3D shapes, and it's good also, she thought, for focusing attention.
1: So why do you think Lego is being so successful in China?
0: Well, part of it is that it has been doing well worldwide. In 2014, it overtook Mattel as the world's biggest toy company. Mattel is the maker of Barbies and owner of the brand Fisher-Price. I think that China has, in the last couple of years, been a bright spot for it. and Lots of growth there. It says that it's growing at very strong double digits, although wouldn't tell me by how much exactly. And I think that it's done very well at localizing its brand and making it relevant to Chinese parents and children. And as part of that, created three sets that were launched just this year. One was a dragon boat race set. Another was a Chinese New Year's Eve dinner kit. And a lot of people loved the attention to detail that went into that. So they had the tiny little hongbao or red envelopes that you traditionally give money in at Chinese New Year. The sets are quite expensive, but Lego told me that the idea was not so much to sell lots of them, but just to show Chinese consumers that they're making something for China.
1: And other toy makers are not going to those lengths?
0: Well, I compared how well Lego has done with another iconic toy maker, Mattel and its Barbie brand, and interestingly, Barbie just hasn't had much traction in China. I spoke to a former Chinese manager at Mattel who told me that he thought their approach to localizing, which involved bringing in a cheaper, lower quality line of Barbies, seemed somehow arrogant. It's funny, they seem both to have sort of pitched it low and pitched it high and missed out on the middle. And by pitching high, they opened in 2009 a Barbie flagship store on a luxury street in Shanghai. And it was over six floors, it was bright pink. I've only seen photographs of this, but I'm told that you could get Barbie teeny cocktails there. And somehow I think this confused Chinese parents. They weren't quite sure who Barbie was for and it closed two years later.
1: I guess it can't have helped that your standard Barbie doesn't look like your standard Chinese kid or standard woman for that matter.
0: Yes, right. And I think that perhaps they were hoping that Barbie would be a sort of aspirational cultural icon in the way that it has been for girls in the West. But it just didn't seem to work in China. In fact, China's equivalent to Barbie is a doll that has more Chinese features, tends to wear more Chinese clothing. The parents I spoke to told me that they didn't particularly like the fact that Barbie was an adult woman. They thought it was strange to give an adult figure to a young girl. And on the whole, I think, prefer cuddly animals.
1: So do you think that's the sort of the way forward for for other companies trying to break into the Chinese markets to to make them more uh, sort of focused on the culture, more sort of bespoke?
0: Yeah, I think Lego has definitely built a model, so to speak, (laughs) for other toy makers going into China, it can be hard because there are increasingly high quality toy makers who are buying the rights to well-known characters and brands and then churning out pretty good toys, whether that's Disney or others. And so I think it's going to be difficult to compete against those unless you have a recognisable Western brand that affluent middle-class Chinese parents feel like they want to spend on.
1: Stephanie, thank you very much for coming in.
0: Thank you, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.